0: Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. bees they're one of the best pollinators to have flying around your food garden and your flower garden it's been said that bees are responsible for one out of every three bites of food you eat well today we talk about attracting bees to your garden and we're going to take it one step further how about raising your own hive of honeybees? we talk with one of the world's foremost bee authorities dr norman gary on how you can become a successful honeybee hobbyist Are you familiar with parsnips? It's a tasty, nutritious root crop that matures in cold weather, but needs to get planted soon for harvest after the frost season begins. We'll be talking parsnips with a big fan of this carrot relative, Matt Mattis. He's author of the book, Mastering the Art of Vegetable Gardening. We're buzzing with great garden information on this, episode 30 of Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, and we're going to do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Like animals. Do you enjoy caring for plants? Uh, Do you have a garden? Well, if you're listening to the show, you probably do. And you're probably curious about nature. And if uh, this sounds like you, you just might love beekeeping in your backyard. But how do you get started? What are some of the problems? We are talking with the area's best expert I can think of when it comes to bees. He's an entomologist. He uh, graduated from Cornell University, and he joined the UC Davis Entomology Faculty way back when in 1962. He retired in 1994. After a 32-year academic career, he's authored more than 100 publications, including scientific papers, book chapters, and popular articles in the beekeeping trade journals. And you may have even seen him at the state fair playing a clarinet while covered in bees. That would be Dr. Norman Gary, who's now retired, but he keeps producing books, including his latest, the second edition of The Honey bee hobbyist which came out recently so you just might want to give a listen and maybe share it with your friends too as far as the podcast goes who are raising bees and they're going to learn a lot today about raising bees in the backyard dr gary it's a pleasure talking with you i think we talked many years ago when the first edition of the honeybee hobbyist came out and and now you have a second edition so what's different in the second edition
1: well, in the second edition, I've added a great deal of information, uh, things like uh, uh, I have a chapter on beekeeping clubs so that uh, anyone interested in bees in various areas and counties can uh, get the idea of how to con- make contact there. added a chapter on uh, formal beekeeping education, ways to, uh, get, a, to get a master of beekeeping degree. And the real spotlight is on urban beekeeping. That's the hot spot here. Uh, Then for fun, I added a chapter on entertaining with bees. And I think (laughs) you'd be greatly surprised by what I say there. And Finishing off with more fun with bees. I have a, uh, there's so many fun things you can do. And so I go into great detail there too.
0: Do I have this right that you are in the Guinness Book of World Records for holding the most bees in your mouth for the longest period of time? I'm afraid so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not the longest time, but four or ten seconds. Uh, That's I, it was just a little fun thing I did. I dreamed up this stunt, wrote the, the rules, and basically I, tr- I trained foraging bees to come from their hive over to where I was seated, and uh, they were collecting artificial nectar, just that sugar syrup with a flavor added, uh, from a sponge on a little plate right where I was seated. After I had about a thousand bees or so. Uh, routinely going back and forth, collecting and then delivering back to the hive, uh, I took I hid that uh, source of food and substituted a little sponge with the same food that I could put inside my mouth. So, every time I exhaled, the fragrance of that uh, nectar would uh, go out into the air and, and the bees would suddenly head from my mouth. So... When the time came for the stunt, I just opened my mouth, and within about 10 seconds, my mouth was full of bees. I closed my lips, tried to smile, but I couldn't. I was too <laughs> too stressed. <laughs> <laughs> and did you get stung? Nope. I didn't get—we that, we can talk about stings. I love to. Uh, anyway, I didn't get stung, and uh, I just simply opened my mouth after 10 seconds and sort of blew the bees into the little cage for counting. And uh, can you guess how many I had? I bet you already know somewhere around a hundred, wasn't it? 109. 109. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't recommend this as a recreational activity for anyone else, okay?
0: (laughs) All right. it's not in your chapter on entertaining with bees.
1: No, I... Well, (laughs) if it's there, it's certainly not there to encourage beekeepers to do it. In fact, I I discourage these uh, public displays of uh, weird things with bees, like clustering on your body and such. I've done a lot of that as an entertainer, but for the average beekeeper I, I discourage this because i think people get the, the wrong ideas
0: <laughs> all right so basically uh, the subtitle is kids don't try this at home yeah <laughs> all right now right in your first chapter you talk about the fear of stings and of course when you talk about uh, trying to encourage people to have a backyard uh, hive of bees uh, somebody in the family is going to say something about bee stings
1: this the sting. uh thing is the most uh, misunderstood element let me say this about bees yes they do sting but in defense of their hive their colony their social organization there and only near their hive it makes no sense for a bee to sting away from the hive because the bee that stings always dies we we see uh, bees farging all over the place all around us every day they're on flowers they never bother you only way you could possibly get stung is if you, say, uh, step on a flower that uh, and you're barefoot, something weird like that.
0: Exactly. I, I remember when I had a swimming pool and I'd be floating in the pool and a bee would land on me and I would just watch him or her to see what they wanted. And basically, they just wanted the water off my body.
1: They, they wanted the salt water. They, mm-hmm. they have a requirement for salt. And yes, sometimes they do visit tools and and sort of scare people but they're harmless if you don't bother them
0: yeah they're our friends obviously i mean we've talked on the garden show for years about uh the benefits of bees that basically every third bite of food you take is uh comes courtesy of a bee consider the bees that are necessary for uh, pollinating fruit trees and and so much more that uh, they are a very necessary part And it certainly makes sense for homeowners to to want that action in their backyard to not only help uh, pollinate their plants, but maybe uh, uh, harvest a a gallon or two of honey if that's possible. And one thing you point out in your book, in the second edition, is the fact that sometimes homeowners get a little too over enthused when it comes to starting a hobby like beekeeping, and they basically have too many hives that their yard cannot support or the neighbor's yards can't support.
1: Absolutely, this is the greatest threat to uh, the welfare of bees in the urban environment. There's only so much nectar and pollen out there in the uh, in the immediate area. So uh, if you have too many bees, they're on the verge of starvation, and uh, they are. Not producing what we call Surplus honey Honey above their needs My main uh, target here Is to persuade beekeepers To uh, have a maximum Of two hives In the urban environment Otherwise uh, We're going to have serious problems Too many bees And uh, resulting Starvation of bees
0: How much nectar do bees consume? How much do they need?
1: let's let's first realize that honey is the primary food of bees they also eat nutrients from pollen but within a, in a year's time hive of bees will consume uh, more than 100 pounds of honey they have to have that stored before the surplus honey above above and beyond it can be harvested by beekeepers for human consumption One
0: thing you point out in your book I found interesting is that the harvestable honey, the quantity for home beekeepers, has actually been going down over the years. And is it because of this overpopulation?
1: Yeah, if you have too many cows in the pasture, they start starving. And in in the bee situation, if they overgraze their nectar pollen resources, then they're, they're going to be producing and storing less honey. So it's a losing game if we have too many bees in the urban environment.
0: We're talking with Dr. Norman Gary, author of The Honey Bee Hobbyist, The Care and Keeping of Bees, the second edition. He's a former entomologist at UC Davis. It's an excellent book. If you're going to be starting uh, the hobby of keeping honey bees or you are one, you need this book. So let's talk about uh, some of the common mistakes that home beekeepers generally make and When people get enthused about having bees, one of the most disconcerting things that happens to them that sometimes around
1: October or so, the bees leave. Where did these bees go? Healthy colonies don't leave. They just cluster during the cold winter and survive that way. They create their own heat inside that uh, winter cluster. But uh, now that we have some serious Uh, parasites and various diseases of bees sometimes the colonies simply abscond i mean the the bees just all leave the colony and go elsewhere it's uh, unfortunate but it does happen now and then and one
0: thing that sometimes scares people is sometimes in the spring there will be a swarm of bees that will take up residence in a backyard tree
1: (laughs) yes that's fairly common in april may around in this area Uh, that is the way honeybee colonies reproduce. Half the population will leave the colony with the old queen cluster nearby until the scout bees find a good uh, new uh, cavity for a home and then when they decide uh, together what's the best one they they all take off and uh, go into that hollow tree or sometimes into a wall of a building which is unfortunate and let me emphasize this that bees swarming like this are totally, totally defenseless. They have no information whatever to sting you. The only way you can get stung again is to physically molest them or something. Just watch and enjoy them.
0: Exactly. What are some of the more common mistakes that home beekeepers make?
1: Well, the first uh, thing that a home beekeeper should do is to join a local bee club. Look up the name of your city or your county and then uh, search for Beekeepers Club. Go out there and join the other beekeepers. You can learn a whole bunch from them. It takes a lot of uh, reading and and practical experience to learn how to safely uh, keep bees. You have to open the hive uh, periodically to uh, check out the condition. And for example, if you don't use your smoker correctly, then you're gonna get stung And uh, in extreme cases, this would even be a threat to your neighbor.
0: So what sort of equipment does the home hobbyist need for bees?
1: Well, that bee smoker is number one and knowing how to use it. And I devote uh, a lot of space in my book to uh, that that subject. In addition, uh, protective gear, like a bee veil, it's a screened veil that's over your head. And if you want to go farther, you can buy an entire bee suit. Those protections are good, too, but the primary protection is still to learn how to smoke those bees correctly and, and handle them in a way that doesn't get them all excited. How do you differentiate the workers from the queen? <laughs> For me, it's easy. For beekeepers, it's uh, not quite so easy. The queen is larger. Her abdomen is longer uh, because her ovaries are so enlarged with uh, eggs. You know, she lays over a thousand eggs a day about almost her body weight in eggs a day. So that's an egg factory, and it uh, makes the queen longer, bigger, and uh, you can visually distinguish her from the workers, and they're smaller.
0: And, of course, what a lot of people want to know is, okay, I want more honey out of my hives. How do I get more honey? Well,
1: uh, how much honey do you need, anyway? That's the pr- <laughs> You know, we all eat too much sugar. I think every uh, everyone would agree to that and honey is, their the sugars. My guess is that uh, the average family would uh, benefit from producing less than 50 pounds of honey a year. I mean, how much do you want? Uh, that'll give you enough for your friends. Uh, you're not into this to be a commercial beekeeper to make a profit, you're in it for fun. That's why we have bees, it's for fun. And of course, the, the rewards of honey. Unfortunately, beekeepers sort of think, "Well, if I've got ten hives, I'm a better beekeeper than somebody with two hives." Not true. I would uh, be say it's just the opposite. If you have ten hives and you're in an urban area, then then you're hurting yourself and everybody else by uh, having too many bees in that uh, area with too 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 few nectar sources.
0: And if you're wondering about what Dr. Gary is saying about the nutritional value of honey, he is uh, dead on accurate. Uh, Honey has zero grams fiber and 17 grams of sugar. And uh, most of the authorities say that we should try to limit our consumption of sugar to no more than 20 to 40 grams of sugar per day. So there's uh, almost a daily dose right there in one tablespoon of honey.
1: Right. Oh, honey should be a little reward now and then, not a staple. You mentioned
0: that there are organizations that uh, do encourage uh, beekeepers and help train beekeepers. And that's kind of an exciting uh, new venture for the University of California Davis is they're expanding the Master Gardener Program and the Master Food Preserver Program to include a master beekeeping course.
1: Yes, that was just started fairly recently. They got a a very uh, substantial grant to support that. And uh, this this really could be your first stop as a potential beekeeper. Contact UC Davis and inquire about the California Master Beekeeping Program. That's a good start.
0: There you go. And again, uh, I think the best place to start is with the book Honey Bee Hobbyist, second edition, The Care and Keeping of Bees by Dr. Norman Gary. And if you
1: try to find this book online, look it up by titled Honey Bee Hobbyist. Those three words. Sometimes they, uh, it's not listed uh, correctly by various sellers, and but if you go for those three words, you'll find it. Dr.
0: Norman Gary, thanks for a few minutes of your time.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Do you like vegetables? Do you like unusual vegetables? Do you like pretty vegetables? Of course you do. There's a new book out on the subject called Mastering the Art of Vegetable Gardening. It's a book by Massachusetts gardener Matt Mattis. He's an American visual designer, an artist, horticulturist and futurist, a third generation gardener of his family's property in Massachusetts. He runs the very popular gardening blog Growing With Plants that you can find at his website, growingwithplants.com. Matt has uh, traveled the world looking for unusual vegetables for you to try in your yard and uh, he has a wonderful saying treat your vegetable garden as your own private fantasy supermarket and matt in your book in talking about all the various vegetables you can grow you come back to a very important point that what you grow in your home garden is going to taste better than what you find in the supermarket
2: know oh, absolutely, and I'm I'm kind of a foodie. So you know why we have why we keep vegetable gardens today is different than let's say why our parents or grandparents or great parents may have had a vegetable garden. You know, then it was so oh, it was a victory garden, or we need to save money. And I I think today it's more like let's grow something that tastes better, ultimately tastes better, but it's a better quality. And for me, it's often something I can't find at a, at you know the local supermarket.
0: In the last year, I've discovered the joys of such things as pak choi and joy choy and uh, Malabar spinach as unusual edibles that are are common in some cultures, just not common to us. But uh, they're certainly very enjoyable. What are some of the I won't say unknown, but some of the vegetables that are unfamiliar to most Americans that you would like to see them try?
2: You know, in seed catalogs now, there are new vegetables showing up all the time, and they're not really new; they're just, you know, being reintroduced, if you will. Uh, many of the Asian greens in here, in New England, of course, it's you know we have to grow them as a fall crop, and they're done by Christmas. But any any of the Asian brassicas, so anything in the cabbage family that's grown for its greens, so the bok choy's and the tatsoys, and anything uh, in the mustard or cabbage realm is is grows best here. And I would assume for you as a fall, winter, even early, early spring crop Uh, until it gets too hot. They do fine. That's right. There are fewer insect problems in the cool weather.
0: Speak for yourself. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it must be wonderful in Massachusetts to be able to grow those things while the insects are dying off around you. Uh, We we have uh, 12 month a year aphid and whitefly issues here. Let's talk a little bit about some root crops that are popular to grow in our area. And they're probably uh, popular with you because you've written about them in your book, Mastering the Art of Vegetable Gardening. And uh, one of my newly found favorites is probably something that I didn't like as a child, but have grown fond of it now, especially this time of year. And that's parsnips.
2: Yeah, parsnips are, and here in New England has a long history for parsnips. You know, they basically, these go back to the pilgrims. So if you're growing root vegetables, you know, we all know carrots, we all know beets, but but parsnips are, they're interesting because I would assume most of us have tasted parsnips now, but I think few people have grown them. Um, and if you have grown them, they seem to be prone with some problems. They, they look fine, the plant looks fine, but then you you try, attempt to pull the root out and you end up with something that looks like a baseball and not, you know, a, a, a foot and a half long parsnip. I and mean, we're trained, I think, To to know, to be familiar with parsnips by what we find in the supermarket, which, you know, crops that are designed to fit in a poly bag. So they're a foot long and they're trimmed on the edges. But what I think a lot of people maybe don't know, and I encourage you to look on YouTube for exhibition parsnip growing, is that in the UK, in England, uh, parsnip growing is competitive parsnip growing is a a sport. (laughs) And uh, they can grow parsnips, you know, three, four feet long. So I took some of those tips that these crazy guys are using, which you know, they might be growing them in pure sand or in potting mix and a hole drilled into a barrel, an oil barrel, and they grow them from seedlings. I tried to, to use that method in the home garden, which, which makes a lot of sense for root vegetables, especially here in New England where we have rocky soil. So I, I lay it out in the book, but in a few steps, you're drilling a hole and you're filling the, the hole with a very soft, soilless mix like a pro mix or any soilless potting mix and then laying in the seed carefully on the surface or i even try what the with the british do is lay in a seedling which seems crazy for a root vegetable but if it's grown perfectly well and you ensure that the seed root that tap root, is perfectly straight when you set it in and lay the soil around it you you can and i have ended up with you know three foot long parsnips if you so need one that long
0: And you mentioned in your book that uh, sometimes you'll start them in long, narrow pots, pots that out here we we call tree pots. But I think back there, they're called root trainers. And they're basically just long, narrow pots that allow for a root crop to get some length to it before you uh, transplant it.
2: Yeah, it has to be done very carefully, like I said. But um, I mean, you will find on the Internet and and in some gardening blogs that people pre-germinate their seed on paper towels or they people go to great lengths with parsnips. Uh, As long as you're very careful and you ensure that that root is perfectly straight, when it's set into the soil, you're better off. You certainly don't want to, let's say, plant seeds and then transplant a seedling from the garden. But it can be done if you grow carefully in a a good soilless mix. Um, I would imagine you can do it also by setting the seed on the, you know, the ideal method of setting a seed on the soil in the garden and covering it lightly. The problem with that is, is parsnips can take, you know, weeks to germinate.
0: Let's talk about harvesting parsnips. I would think you would have to be very careful digging the root out. Yeah, you
2: do. In fact, if uh, if you've done it properly, your root can, the root tip is, you know, it, it, uh, it's a thick root, but it'll turn into almost a hair-like root. So I think the British on their rules for measuring, they want to extract the entire root. But I go down about two and three feet with a, a root shovel and then carefully dig around the root as if you're digging a tree. And you can feel by tugging on it. That it's and then parsnip is not as brittle as a carrot, it's a little more woody, so we'll extract carefully.
0: Is a root shovel the same thing as a trench shovel? Yes, yes. And then, what do you do with a a parsnip? I know we like to eat it raw in a salad. Oh, really? I've never had it raw.
2: No, we it's something a, a New England farmer would have kept in a root cellar through the winter. Our house is 150 years old, so we have a root cellar, a cork lined root cellar, it built into our cellar. So um, fortunate there that I can lay them in in beds of sand where it's dark and it, it's about thirty five degrees. But in a, you know in a refrigerator drawer washed off and shrimmed it should last you know a few months. Wow,
0: you just need a deep drawer to hold it. <laughs> that's yeah right. <laughs> what are some of the good uh, parsnip varieties to try?
2: Well, Gladiator is classic. I always laugh at the names of of the varieties because they always sound like something that's very large or massive and certainly. People wanted a large parsnip back in the nineteenth century. But most of them are British varieties, um, half long Guernsey, which is an heirloom variety. White Spear is a good one. But the Gladiator is a F one hybrid and Javelin is an F one hybrid. And both of those you should find in like good seed catalogs like Johnny Selected Seeds or even some of the larger names like a burpee catalog
0: you mentioned some of the heirloom and open pollinated varieties in your book like half-long guernsey and white spear do they have problems that the hybrids don't have
2: no there there may be a problem with um some of the crowns being hollow but most of them are pretty because it's a root vegetable there are less problems with root damage like anything in the an APACA. so that would be all of your humble umbellifers, what we used to call them, right? Your dill, your parsley, and and even parsnip. The problem would be with caterpillars. So it would be with you know butterfly and moth larvae.
0: What's nice about growing parsnips here is you can plant them from seed uh, three times a year here in the valley. You can plant them in April and then in July and then again in October.
2: Yeah, I'm a bit envious there. (laughs) Uh, Here you can plant them in the northeast, let's say zone five. They're sown in late March and April or seeding set into the ground later. But certainly the ideal way is seed sown direct. Um, But it's a long season crop. We can keep them through the winter and often they get... They get sweeter with the ground freezing and they can handle ground freezing. But we'll throw straw on them so we can dig them up and under a snow cover.
0: The name of the book is Mastering the Art of Vegetable Gardening. It's by Matt Mattis. And Matt uh, profiles many of your favorite vegetables in the book such as onions, garlic, asparagus, rhubarb, artichokes, cabbage, cauliflower, beets, Swiss chard, the lettuces, carrots, beans, okra, and of course the standards, tomatoes and peppers, as well as cucumbers and squash. It's really a beautiful book, well written, and like I say, his philosophy is outstanding. Treat your vegetable garden as your own private fantasy supermarket. And check out his blog as well. GrowingWithPlants.com is where you will find it. GrowingWithPlants.com Dot com and the name of the blog is growing with plants matt mattis thanks for a few minutes of your time today
3: thank
2: you fred
0: we got a quick tip for you debbie flower is here our favorite college horticultural professor and she must be hanging out at nurseries too because when i visit nurseries it's not uncommon to hear the three words sleep creep and leap and it's usually in reference to plants what's that all about debbie flower
3: Yeah, that's about those plants that you're putting from a container or a ball and burlap into the landscape or even bare root and what they do in the years that follow. The first year when you put them in the ground, they just sleep. They're just getting adjusted. They're getting their roots to grow and expand and run into places where there's good water and, and nutrition. And most of the growth that's happening that first year is underground. And the second year, they start to show more above-ground growth. It's not a lot, so they creep. The, the growth above-ground is creeping. And the third year, typically, they're much better established. they got a great root system, and they just take off, so they leap. So this is applied to perennials, things that live three or more years in the landscape, and it varies in how much the sleep, how deep the sleep is, I guess I'd say, and how slow the creep is and how big the leap is. That varies by species, but it's a very good rule of thumb, and it really says to me, I have to be patient. I just put it in the ground. The first year,
0: it's not going to do a whole heck of a lot. I just have to be patient. I would think this would hold true for uh, shrubs and trees as well. Absolutely.
3: Shrubs and trees are technically perennials because they live, they live more than three years. And and that's a, I had a student take me to task on that. So I'm a little sensitive about that. Woody plants, shrubs and trees being woody plants do live uh, more than uh, three years if you know, or have a life span more than three years. Hopefully for you, they will live more than three years. But they are, if you're looking at a book or you're going to the garden center, they're going to be in a separate place than the perennials. The perennials are typically the herbaceous perennials. The thing Some of those herbaceous perennials may die to the ground and disappear all winter long and then reappear uh, in the spring. Others will have a presence above ground, uh, but it tends to be a smaller plant and then it, it springs to life and does its flowering uh, the next year. So those things are called perennials. If they form wood, they're typically in the tree or shrub section.
0: There you go. Sleep, creep, and leap. And if you have any doubts, before you yank a plant out, if if it's growing too slow for you, put a stake in the ground next to it at exactly the height it is, and then walk away for a few months and come back the following spring. I bet that plant will be taller than the stake. Good point. The other is take pictures. Everybody's got a smartphone, right? Yep. Or take your old smartphone and stick that in the ground, and when it gets taller than the <laughs> smartphone, you know it's growing. Oh, all well, that drawer I have full of old phones. I can do that with. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, we 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 have slept. We have crept. We have leapt. Debbie mm-hmm. Flower. Thanks again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Fred. <laughs> Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's available just about anywhere podcasts are handed out. And that includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and uh, hey, Alexa, play the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, would you please? Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.